for tuning in to the HR Uprising podcast. I'm your host, Lucinda Carney. The HR Uprising is focused on helping forward-thinking people professionals deliver real lasting value in their organizations. I'm a chartered psychologist, speaker, and trainer, and recently authored the best-selling business book, How to Be a Change Superhero. My day job is founder and CEO of software and training business, Actus. This gives me the opportunity to work with other businesses like yours. We are focused on building a better workplace for people wherever they are located with the help of our performance, learning and talent management software and our training and consultancy services. Every week on the podcast, I will be covering different topics and challenges joined by relevant experts and real life people professionals. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoy and get value from this week's episode. And welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast. And this week, we're going to focus in on a challenging topic, really. You could look at trauma, you could look at adversity. I'm really pleased to have Samreen McGregor, who is the author of the book Leader Awakened. But she's an executive coach who works with organizations across various industries with a specialism in embracing adversity. And not just embracing it, but embracing it to use it as a catalyst to help um, drive empowerment, well-being and and not sweep it under the uh, under the carpet, I guess, Samreen, is actually to help people use it and channel it um, to more positive relationships in the workplace. So, um, so Samreen, if you want to just introduce yourself maybe better than I just have done, and then we can explore this topic together. Thank you. And Lucinda, I think you did a lovely job at introducing me. It's great to be here today. And um, I, I'm appreciative about what you've already said. I think I think just to, to build on that, uh, adversity and trauma are probably two words. And there are many others that 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 are in that category where, that, that might carry connotations or even trigger us or or, or stimulate a a particular association that might be less desirable. And for me, as someone who over the years, over 25 years, I've worked both within organizations and out of organizations as a consultant and more recently as an executive coach, I've learned through personal experience, through research and through work with various clients, whether they've been individual or in group contexts, that there is one fairly common truth. We all as human beings are the same despite many labels that we use in in corporate um, environments to to help us understand who we are, whether we are employees, leaders, uh, or whether we're a shareholder, we're all humans. And we do share this common truth, which is that in a world where adversity is is commonplace and look at the current context uh, that that we're uh, experiencing in the news and Four years ago, it would have been the pandemic. Um, two years ago, it would have been the Ukraine crisis. We're constantly affected by a, a, a backdrop of adversity. And as a result of that, and as a result of our own personal life stories, we are constantly also having to live through and work with the effects, or sometimes the hidden effects of, of situations that we'd probably choose not to be in. And that affects us both in the professional context as well as in a personal context. 
And more recently, writing this book, I've and doing quite a lot more work specifically in this area. And this has been grown out of the pandemic. Um, I've realized it's a real need and a need for individuals as well as the culture of organizations. So it's an interesting one here, isn't it? Because it does feel that there feels like there's more negativity, adversity all around us overall at the moment. I think certainly since the pandemic and there's been an increased focus in organizations on things like well-being that it does seem like that sort of thing was really like swept under the carpet five years ago. It wasn't even something you um, talked about. It's kind of stiff up a lick. I, I don't know if that is true or not, but would you say there is something very different about now as to why it's more relevant? Yeah, I love the way you asked that question because I think, I think you know, it, it probably existed before the narrative is far more explicit now and you know with with the onset of very immediate uh, access to news and and media social media and and other forms of just knowing what's happening um far more immediately than we would have done 10 years ago five years ago that narrative is not just more present, but it's far more immediate and it's and it's and it's quite, you know, extreme. And, you know, I, I've I've noticed that the studies that have gone into the research that has gone into uh the incidence of mental health generically has grown, you know, and I think I was looking at a particular number, you know, a billion people across the globe are grappling with some form of mental illness. And common disorders like anxiety and depression are resulting from, are, are basically resulting in, um, uh, I think it's a, a trillion US dollars in reduced productivity globally. Okay, that's just a, a, new, a new statistic that I was just reading yesterday. Um, and the projection is that in 2030, that will grow to 6 trillion. And the impact of poor mental health on the economy as well as the consequences societally will be huge will be fairly significant with a, with, a, with a figure like that and I think for me when I think about that I, I don't just think about the cost and the productivity I think about you know the impact the human suffering that comes with that so I corporate life in my experience and organizations because organizations are the communities within which we tend to have our livelihood uh we 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 work to, to to sustain ourselves, and and so therefore, there is an opportunity here to to work with that and to work with it quite proactively. Yeah, and I, I mean, it is in terms of why. Well, there's lots of ways in which we can go at that. One of the things that it makes me think about is: do we support people in resilience? Are people um, you know, how how do we support people? But before I perhaps go there, because I'm sure we'll go that through that through this conversation. The question in my head, and I don't know if you could have, if anyone really knows the answer, is, is there really significantly more anxiety and depression out there? Or is it the fact that people are now being diagnosed with it or it's being recognised? And, and that's the interesting question to me. Yeah, and I think it, it touches on, the, on on what you said earlier, which is, 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 is it actually something that's more uh you know more significant and is it is has it been proven to to have grown to the order of magnitude that it's being spoken about is is what i'm hearing yes. you are yes and 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 i think there's there's probably two parts to that answer i think the first is 
the statistics would would demonstrate yes and if you take some fairly critical pivotal moments in human history just over the last you know even less than 10 years it would suggest that there is a a fairly logical correlation between a pandemic and and various um socio-economic and political events that are are contributing to that but if we go back to this first world war the second world war or i was i was helping my son study for his history gcse and i was learning about some of the brutalities you know when um king richard and king john and you know and, and the crusades of course there will have been uh, an incidence of of stress anxiety trauma that existed then but we're becoming far more in tune with the effects of those and obviously, as we've adapted as humans, um, we've also learned and the narrative plus our understanding of that narrative and how it's enabling us to make sense of what we want to accept and put up with um, and what we want to help heal and support is also becoming far more uh, uh, highly aware and, and we are becoming more aware and more conscious of it. So I would say, and my second answer is, I don't even think it matters. Yeah. <laughs> and That's I guess that is really cynical. Yeah. Because I think, yes, the incident, I mean, it's a little bit like the environment. You know, I know there's an aggregate envi- uh, you know, environmental, um, you know, complexity that's come with, with, with us growing and our population growing and the way we've treated the, the planet and how we interact with it. But, but the more we learn, the more... I guess as human beings, we want to try to understand how we how we work with some of these things. And certainly in my own experience, particularly, and I can say this just from from the my professional career and how it's evolved and where it's gone to, I believe that it it's inevitable the adversity that we face as humans. Um I can genuinely say that as six years ago, my son was diagnosed with a cancerous brain tumor and as a family we had to learn to adjust to w- what did that mean you know, I was an entrepreneur I'd set up my business six years before that I was flying I was definitely on a path as a family we were extremely happy and on a path and something very unexpected disrupted that path and the reality is that you know learning how to transcend that but then learning how to pick ourselves back up again as parents, as as children, we're still on that journey. Um, these and, and we could say that we're in the minority, but the more I see statistically the incidence of brain tumor in pediatric patients, the more I'm saying there are cause of, there's a cause and effect between some of the stresses in, and adversities we face and the impact it's having on our health as well. That the same son that's done doing his GCSEs or done his GCSE. Yes, it is. It I'm is. really pleased to hear that. Having a son who who having a son who's just done his GCSE and, and actually in our village, sadly, someone who died last year of a pediatric brain tumor. So it's it's far more prevalent oh, prevalent than you than you want it to yes. be. So um yeah, huge source. So I mean, and and I suppose this is the thing, isn't it? So that's that's your trauma and, and adversity and you've learned to go through that and that as a leader in an organization other people have 
the parent with dementia or the partner that's had a stroke or the you know things these things that are going on doesn't have to be health related but there's so many things out there um that as I said on the theme of this we need to be aware of because it's going to affect people's performance in the workplace and at home and their their whole level of of ha happiness and productivity isn't it it's because this is the real stuff actually it's more important than uh, than the work in reality um, winding back a bit, I suppose, then to look at this, um, when we talk about trauma or adversity, do you want to maybe define those for us and then maybe link it into how, if you're a leader, the way you've written a book about this, how this links into leadership and what we can do about it? Yes, of course. I think that's a great, great place to start. So I think trauma and um, and anything associated with trauma, uh, psychological trauma, because that's predominantly what we're talking about here but 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 I it, you know trauma trauma is quite a generic word isn't it I mean it's often associated with catastrophic disasters or something very severe in terms of an incident you know rapes uh abuse and my experience actually um and the more I work with people who have the manifestations of traumatic experience and um in in their workplace or in their current present life the more i understand that 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 there are variations of tra on trauma and i think they're all relevant um of course the catastrophic ones the ones that we are all currently facing when we watch the news or read about what's happening in in awesome. uh israel yeah. in, in palestine um and of course we i think most of us will have come into contact with someone within our lives that, that has experienced abuse or uh, an addictive uh, behavior in a loved one or themselves. But there are daily interactions that we have in earlier parts or phases of our life as children um, or during relationships and in the workplace. And across all three of those contexts, those experiences can become chronic versions of, of traumatic experience. And I think one of the things that I love to refer to is the definition of trauma that uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, he's, he's someone I'm very inspired by, who's studied palliative care, addictions, ADHD, and trauma itself. And he's written actually a very recent book called The Myth of Normal um, that, that that actually looks spans across a lot of these different contexts. And he reminds us that the word trauma is rooted in Latin in the definition of the word for wound, which is not the actual traumatic traumatic experience itself or the, the horrible incident um, or the or even the the menial incident that might be slightly innocent to one person but more difficult for another that might happen repetitively. It's the wound that's left behind. It's how that manifests within us or not actually manifests is the wrong word, manifests later, but how it lives within us. So I think it's really important to notice that some of these, as, as I said, potentially hidden or less conscious wounds haunt us and they can remain dormant for periods of time. And then something in the moment, in the present, can then either touch them or trigger them or and then take us to a place where we would have experienced them previously, whether it was severe or whether it was a repetitive pattern 
that we were affected by and then show up again in the moment. And I think just to make this really practical and make it slightly more relatable, you know, I was working with a client this week, actually. Um, she's a new client um, and she was talking about a difficult relationship with a new uh, boss. Actually, she's not even her direct boss, but she's she's a, a C-suite exec in her department that has come in and has changed things around quite a lot and restructured. And she was reflecting how, on how difficult her own experience had been with this person. Uh, the person had been described as having narcissistic tendencies. So actually quite, and this is this was more what she had described. It, it, you know, she felt put down. She felt actually she was describing undesirable effects she was experiencing, which were quite on the on the receiving end of abuse. She then later on in the conversation started talking about her previous relationship and her previous partner had been abusive to her, physically abusive. And very quickly, as this conversation unraveled, without forcing any correlation or causality, it was clear that some of her reactions in the current context were probably being highly influenced by some of her stress responses in a previous time with a completely different person. Yeah. And that, for me, is the indication that these wounds live with us. And often what I see instead in a team context is some of this happening in the moment between different people within a team context and, and in, in an executive context, for example, where the stakes are high, people feel exposed. The backdrop is extremely challenging. Shareholders are waiting for performance and profits mm-hmm. and the organization is waiting for direction and reassurance. And you see these executives being pulled from pillar to post of course, their own personal triggers are going to be sitting in that room along with them. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because this whole thing about in order to resolve it, and my sense is in order to resolve these things, so you might be the manager and you can see that person A is being triggered. That's a term that didn't exist a few years ago, did it? By person B. And you might know that person, you might even understand about the background of person A. But there's this whole thing of, um, if if people don't realise, it has to be brought to the surface. But then there's this whole cultural thing of, you know, maybe I know we're much more um, open maybe about home and work, home and work than we were prior to the pandemic. But people feel this is really private, sensitive stuff having an impact on their behaviour and relationships that they may not even realise it is. And so it's a tricky thing to navigate if you're a leader or in terms of our audience, it could be in someone in HR um, thinking, you know, that's difficult in terms of these relationships and how do we navigate it? Because it's private personal information about a, a traumatic past event, but it is having an impact on today's workplace behaviour. You're raising something so sensitive and I have huge compassion for people who work within the HR context because you're holding a huge amount of responsibility and duty to the organization and to the business and particularly from a I think there's a checks and balances role there you know you're, you're you're creating boundaries and managing them and holding people to account yet there is this messy stuff that exists and shows up and pops up and sometimes it it, it doesn't really come to the surface but it 
it, it's like ripple effects. It, it trickles. And that then has a huge impact on your ability or the ability of anybody within an HR context to manage some of the subtleties, but also enforce some of those boundaries. Yeah. It's, it's it's a fairly, I mean, you know, not to misuse the, the word, but it's, you know, polarized experience. I was going to say schizophrenic, but more polarized experience, I think is probably more appropriate. So, yeah, it's it's really hard. Absolutely really hard. And the, the other thing that you said that is worth mentioning is post-pandemic, and it's interesting how we're all settling now post that pandemic life. You know, we didn't have easy access particularly in the western world and and i'm reflecting also and you you use the word stiff upper lip earlier which i i attribute and I'm, by the way i'm married to a british man and my kids definitely well, comes persian uh, background uh, well well half indian half venezuelan actually and grew up in uh, venezuela so yeah i forgot to say that but i normally start there and i forgot and so, yes, but I think, you know, the stiff upper lip and there's some cultural implications here as well. But in the Western world, we don't actually cross some of those personal professional boundaries very readily. And in a corporate world, work context, it's quite task focused. We're here to fulfill a role and a job that's changing, by the way. I think in an ecosystem environment or that that sort of, you know, um, perspective or lens, there is a lot more interaction and, and perhaps some of that is evolving as well in the complexity of how us as humans are evolving in the workplace. But classically, we don't, we didn't. And um, so some of this is, is, I think it's coming up as a bit of a surprise. And our response to the pandemic, by the way, is one final point on this, is also a trauma response. We all had to fundamentally shift how we lived. And having had that experience three years before, two years, it was about two and a half years before with our own up, we had to relocate to Boston to live there for a couple of months for my son's final part of treatment. And I remember coming back and having to reintegrate socially. That was one of the toughest things, even though we had a huge community that supported us. So integrating into our work, our social back at school, all of these different life integrations, we had suffered, and I use the word suffered, because it was such a difference to what we had lived before. And anyone listening today will be able to reflect on that experience during, before, during, and after the pandemic. Yes, absolutely. And, and anything else they've experienced, I guess, um, no. personally too. So in terms of practically, you know, things that we can do, so it's, First of all, if we were to recognize something, if, 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 if we think of ourselves as either a leader or an HR leader in an organization, um, would you what do you recommend? If you see somebody behaving in a certain way, how do you recognize that it might be trauma? Do you talk to them, um, make it overt? What, what, what should we do and what shouldn't we do to avoid crossing a line um, inappropriately? So what are the new boundaries? Well, I think, look, just before I answer that, I think it's a really important question, but I think there's something that sits before it and and often even engaging in the concept of trauma is it, it has got complications with it. You know, it, it takes a level of awareness and consciousness and that needs time and space. So to, to answer a part of your question, you know, doing it flippantly in the middle of a meeting saying, oh, I think you're responding like this because of this yeah. would in, immediately create a, a really unhelpful dynamic and 
and can be very persecutory and, 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 and unethical, actually. Um, and I think, you know, people have, we all, our minds have the capacity to, to do several things to protect us against the experience of pain. So if, if I'm feeling triggered or um, emotion, you know, disproportionately emotional about something in the moment, and, and, and it's clear that it's probably reflective of something else rather than what's going on here. You, I, I will might might suppress some of that. I might avoid it. Um, my mind has a, a wonderful capacity to do that. So I think if 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 I was working with someone where I want to make an observation or or share some feedback, is being aware that we do as humans tend to avoid some of these things in order to protect ourselves. And some of that's avoidance. Some of that can be numbness. It, it's like scar tissue. Yeah, I think about a, a trauma as a wound. The scar tissue helps to create a barrier between the painful experience and that person's ability to navigate life going forward. So, and I, and I do want to just highlight some of these things because it, it, it does take some professional understanding or awareness or better yet, if you don't have the education and are not informed on how to do this, it's having the compassion, letting go of some of the judgments, noticing that actually as humans, we tend to have a negativity bias and we tend to make erroneous assumptions about somebody else's behavior based on what, what we know or what we've experienced previously. So the very first thing I would say is, Give yourself the space and time to really nurture relationships. If something's not going well with a colleague, go for a walk, <laughs> catch up about something totally different if it's getting in the way. Understand what's going on for them, help them understand what's going on for you, and then have the task-based conversation. That will enable you to put aside or at least even share and have empathy for one another about what are some of the unseen factors that are going to get in the way of you working towards a shared goal yeah really that's so important isn't it going to that human aspect because you can stay you can stay up there on task and then you never actually get underneath what's really going on you carry on having those issues whereas if you can disarm i was thinking the really importance of having that personal relationship with somebody or just building trust in that way so you know you just seem a bit out, don't really seem yourself or it's, it's interesting how quite often you can disarm someone in, in that scenario and get without even intending to without intending to and and I think you said something there that's really important is when we're focused on the task and there's other factors getting in the way interestingly the productivity declines yeah but we don't know why yeah yeah. And our assumption is the task or our ability and either resourcefulness or skills associated with the task are the problem. When actually many times it's this it's 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 the glue that's missing. Yeah. So I say it's like the unspoken, the speed of trust is that book, isn't it, by Stephen Covey, yes. Stephen Covey. And it's like that whole thing of um teams, you know, when you work in a really, really effective team, somehow you're just so much more effective, but you don't really know what you're doing differently. But it's it's unspoken, it's smooth, it's fluid, it's um, it's cohesive. Whereas it's the opposite. You could all be working as individuals, you know, but uh, you know, in theory, working as hard as possible, but it's less effective. So it's a little bit intangible there, isn't it? This unspoken stuff. 
It is, but you, you, you've. I just want to make one point here on this listener, listener, because it's really interesting. So when you're in that cohesive flow as a team, there are factors that are enabling you to to work with trust. The current context, the backdrop that we share, is injecting constant factors that are making it quite difficult for individuals to be in a space where they can enact and share trust. We're in a fight flight response a lot of the time. And most of that, in my experience, certainly in my observation of myself, as well as clients I work with, it's unconscious. Yeah. And possibly at the moment, I think in the way that many of us work differently from five years ago, not everybody, but many of us, there's possibly less um, informal downtime. So you jumping on doing things, there's less coffee machine stuff, there's less, um, you jump on a call or a team's call, or whatever, it's more it's more to the point, um, a lot of these things. So there is maybe just less space around the edges to have that relationship building that, that is so important to actually get underneath what's going on for people. And I think, uh, well, it's interesting because I'm, I'm seeing some organizations go back into the office. And of course, that's a whole other topic. And the beauty of having that space in between meetings and when you're present and you're fully there. But one thing we've learned as humans is that task-focused rhythm. So even if we are going back into an office environment, we have now been habituated to continue to go schedule to schedule to schedule to schedule. And we have learned not to maximize some of that inter formal, informal rather social time, which we would have done more naturally in the past. I, I agree, definitely. We don't have that informal time. But I feel that if it hasn't gone, it's become more acceptable to bring your whole self to yes. work. So the end, the question is, when do you do it? <laughs> when? I, I love that, that dichotomy because, again, one of the things that I end Leader Awakened in my book with is that question of what is the expectation of bringing your whole self to work? There are a lot of organizations that are using that as, again, as an expected narrative um as an invitation um and you're like but when (laughs) how (laughs) yes in practice how how do we do this when we're all so busy Mm -hmm. totally i was fascinating so sorry if if you were to give people some recommendations some top tips as to how we can embrace this it it is it's it's not a straightforward it's quite a thought-provoking topic but what would your recommendations be to people listening to this podcast about this topic so I think there's a couple of things. Uh, one is 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 to notice and 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 to to spend a bit of time trying to understand yourself. And I know that sounds like a fairly fairly generic or tedious task, but notice when you haven't got enough space and be aware of what it takes to slow down. And I know personally for me, one of my ten- tendencies is um, at the end of a really busy day or I'm really stressed, you know, I am a coach, but I still carry quite a lot of what of, of, of what I work with with people. And um, I would love to go and just have a really tough gym workout, hit training session. And actually the psychological term for that is a sublimation, which means I'm doing that because the endorphin high and the dopamine kick that I'm getting is helping me actually in some ways to numb some of the stress that's come from the day. 
I've noticed actually that I love that. However, is that really serving me well? We haven't talked about some of the physiological aspects of stress and anxiety and mental health today, but I've learned personally that it's having a pretty significant impact on my health. So I've literally had to create some very different routines. It started in September, so this is quite new um, and it's it's having a huge impact already. And two half days a, a week, I'm actually doing yoga. And I say half days, I do an hour and a half of yoga, but the time before and the time after is forcing me not to do any work because I've got to drive somewhere with no phone reception. Mm-hmm. I'm back. <laughs> so putting some practices in place that innate or habits in place and rhythms in place that help me to do that is the only way that I can really help. That. Are you saying then that um, your hip workout, although it made you feel better, was just numbing your feelings? So it wasn't actually working out. So people who like to go for a run or other than that, that wasn't isn't as good for you as yoga doing is, uh, you know, is it, or is it just that it's a different variety of different ways of unwinding? For me, for me in particular, because my stress level was very high, balancing some of that hit training, which I loved, with a far more calming form of exercise. And to use a technical word, being in a sympathetic nervous system, dominant, uh, dominant sympathetic nervous system, which is very heightened, very, very stressful. If I only use that, even though it felt great at the time, it wasn't actually helping me to manage some of my own needs, my health needs, and also show up and work with my clients in a emotionally regulated place. So that's for me. And that's just an example. But of course, I'm not saying, you know, I still, by the way, I still go for a run and I still go do my weight training, but it's about balancing some of those things. The big point I'm making there is to create the space I've, for the first time in my working life, actually created two half days where I am doing work, by the way. I'm doing yoga. I'm doing meditative work. I'm actually doing quite a lot of reflection when I do that. And I'm also serving my own health needs. Yes. But it's very different to the rhythm I would have have been doing before. So that would be an overall top tip in terms of, you know, understand, take a step back and, and reflect on how you are serving your own health needs and, you know, make sure that you've got a balance of them. So it's not just one way or another. And again, that's something I guess you can enable to others if you're a manager of others in the workplace, um, et cetera, in terms of helping them. Is there anything else that you'd leave as a yeah. final thought? If, if you live in, in an automatic pilot, you will respond automatically. Yeah. So this undermines our ability to break some of the patterns of interactions or behaviors. You know, I might see myself as inadequate in a particular context, in a a team context. Does that stem from something from my past? Has someone actually given, given me that idea in the past. And again, I'll give you a very personal example for a second. So, you know, when I was growing up, uh, my father called me stupid a lot. Okay. He was often impatient, but he's the most loving, wonderful dad, you know, and actually he's had incredible sort of traumatic experiences himself in his life. So I know why some of his impatience in the moment when I was a child would manifest in him calling me something that today, or actually maybe not today, but over the last 10, 15 years, I would have perceived as being inadequate. My behaviors in response to that are to drive harder, to do more, to be hugely ambitious, to write a blimmin' book, 
<laughs> after having gone through the 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 the, the, the um the journey that we went the traumatic journey I went to um but now I'm very aware that actually a I've got compassion for him and and why he may have called me that but b I am very weary of relationships with bosses or with clients that I highly regard and who I want to please uh just through going above and beyond the call of duty because I don't want to be inadequate or I wouldn't have wanted to be inadequate so finding some of those patterns and not allowing them to be the automatic response is really important I think that's that's an interesting one I it, we could end well we'll have to end here but we could also start here couldn't we because it is <laughs> one of those things where we're saying we've all got traumas and experiences there's lots more going on than there ever has there's more uh, mental illness and and going you know being certainly being diagnosed but likely there's more of it out there we've got more opportunities to be triggered which means the people that work for us have got more opportunities to trigger us and uh, to trigger each other and etc etc the answer is understanding people as people but we have less time because we're more used to being task focused so there's all these sort of dichotomies really is that what I feel like that's we've looked at that really um lots of things that are dichotomies and then we need to think about ourselves how do we let go of this stress let go of our trauma um is our normal way of relaxing the right way of relaxing maybe maybe not um yes loads and loads of things for us to to think about here and maybe we have to follow this up on a future podcast summary um if people want to get hold of you how would you recommend that they um reach out to you well thank you Lucinda oh and I'd love by the way I'd love to come back to another podcast because I'm sure we've got more to talk about it's been brilliant so there's um a website I think that you you would certainly homes everything it's turmericgroup.com and there is a specific website which is in within it, but you you could you could go directly there, which is leaderawakened.co.uk. And within there, there's lots of information about the book itself, but in turmeric group, there's also lots of information about the work that we do. Um, and then on uh social media, Instagram and LinkedIn, you can follow at Leader Awakened and you can get lots of different tips and provocative reflections collective thinking um, that will help you to awaken yourself in those moments where those patterns need breaking. And we'll put those links on um, on the show notes. Um, Samarine, thank you. Yes, I like that provocative, reflective thinking. That's that's the way to go forward. And, and that's one of the benefits of doing a podcast like this. Hopefully it gives people a chance to have some food for thought for themselves and for those they work with. Thank you so much for joining us on the HR Uprising podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I really hope you found this week's episode useful and enjoyable. If you did, perhaps you could recommend us to a friend or colleague or give us a review on your platform of choice. It really helps new listeners to find us. Now you can access links to any of the information mentioned in this show via the website www.hruprising.com. Further free resources are also available at www.actus.co.uk. There you can also find out more about our software and training solutions. Finally, why not join our LinkedIn group, The HR Uprising, to share ideas and collaborate with other like-minded people professionals. Thank you for listening to The HR Uprising podcast.